Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Wednesday, August the 3rd, 2011, and uh, it is episode 716 of the Survival Podcast. Now, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about where you're going to live. Where are you going to live? And I don't necessarily mean tomorrow, but I mean for the long term. Where are you going to spend the rest of your life? When you finally get to a place and say, this is where I'm going to build it. This is where I'm going to create that better life for myself. What's that place going to be like? And I don't mean what kind of stuff will you have. I mean, where geographically are you going to be? And I don't mean will you be in Idaho or Florida. That can come into it. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to break down the places that we choose to live as people into uh, into five primary areas. And uh, those are urban, suburban, small town, uh, true rural, and remote. And I'm going to talk about the good, the bad, and a little bit of the ugly of all five of those. And I think it will be a different way of looking at this. And it will help with the question I get all the time. I'm trying to decide whether I need to move out to the wilds of Montana or not. Well, if you like it there, then you probably do. But that's really not what you're asking. What you're asking is where I, li- it's where I live now or where I've been living up till now or the place that my wife wants to live. Is it safe? Is it right for me? Or what am I giving up if I go to the wilds of Montana or even the wilds of Missouri or the wilds of Arkansas or the wilds of North Carolina. I can tell you that in a lot of these states that we think of as being very densely populated, well, they are. They're extremely densely populated in two or three cities. And uh, there's places in Texas where you could walk for 10 days and never see another human being. And I guess people say, well, Texas is a big state. There are places in Connecticut, folks, where you could get lost and no one would even know where to look to find you if you hadn't left something behind. So remote can be almost anywhere. And the other ones can be in any state in the union, definitely. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, whether you live in an urban environment or out on a remote homestead, the sad fact is there are people out there who would like to take what you have and make it their own or just want to do you harm. That's reality. And it's something that touches us all no matter where we choose to live. And that means that it makes a lot of sense to be trained and be able to use uh, our First Amendment, our Second Amendment rights, our First Amendment rights, our Second Amendment rights to defend ourselves with firearms if necessary. But if you're going to do that, that right to self-defense, that right to have the capability to take the life of another human being comes with some extensive responsibilities and knowing how to do it right, knowing how not to endanger the innocent when you do. That's why I think it makes sense to, when you start looking at, well, which firearm do I add next to my collection? Maybe before you add that next gun, you add some firearms training. So check out Fortress Defense Consultants. And remember, if you can't travel to them, if you can put together a small group of people that want the type of training that they, that you, that they provide, they will come out to you. Next up today, Backyard Food Production. One of my favorite sponsors of all time, Marjorie Wildcraft, is back at the Survival Podcast. I made special allowances just to bring her back in. Uh, some people would say that's not fair. I, to them, I say, bunk. Look, 
What I want when I bring you guys a sponsor is somebody that I can say, look, if you go do business with that person, your money's well spent. If you go do business with that person, you're doing business with one of the good guys who cares about our community and cares about what we're doing. There is no one that I can feel more secure about making that statement with than Marjorie. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, you need to get a hold of the DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm, and you need to do it now, and you need to add it to your collection, and I won't bat an eyelash when I make that recommendation. I learned so much from watching it about not just what to do, but how to think. And the resource DVD that comes with it is probably worth the price of the DVD itself alone. And you can know this. When you deal with Marjorie, she's going to take care of you, and she's going to make sure things are done right. If any kind of hiccup happens, because, you know, shipping companies are run by human beings and sometimes make a mistake, she's going to cover it. She's going to take care of you. She'll do it every single time. So check out BackyardFoodProduction.com today. Remember, the best way to make sure... You're dealing with any of our sponsors and dealing with the right people. Go through the links on our website. All of their banners are in the right-hand margin. Next up today, remember, connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, remember, if you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, either active duty or prior service, send me an email before you join, and I will give you a special discount code, a national service discount. Last but not least, remember I am running a sale on the Member Support Brigade this week. The discount code is BREAD, and I'm running that in conjunction uh, with the DVD, or the, actually the downloadable video, Bread from Gasoline by Stephen Harris, where he talks about a myriad of ways to produce your own energy and how to use it for the simple act of baking bread during an emergency. While it's all about baking bread, the energy production methodologies and determining how much energy you're producing and how much energy you can use would apply to anything that would use energy. So I think it's a great 95-minute uh, video, again, available by download. It's normally $34.95, worth every penny. Five bucks this week only, only to MSB members. If you log into your account, the special link to use is right on the Brigade Headquarters page. That's why I'm running the discount. The discount is 20% off any membership term of your choice. The discount does not, does not, does not apply to the recurring membership when you renew only to your first term. So if you get the discount on a month, it's a buck. If you get the discount on a year, it's ten bucks. So you know what to do if you want the best discount. Yes, you can use that discount by mailing in your payment. If you do and you want the bread from gasoline deal, you will never get your thing to me and your login back in time to buy it. So email me and say, payment's on the way, Jack, and I will send you the link. If you cheat, I will find you and I will make you miserable, so don't cheat. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Look, I think on this, this question, where should you live? My stance is well known. You know that my stance is going to be... Uh, at, at minimum, small town, uh, better rural and remote if you can make it work for yourself. And somewhere in that realm, I'm going to tell you, get out of the cities, get out of the suburbs. But there's a problem with that, uh, with me just saying it that way. And I can't say it that way and mean it because one of my tenets of modern survivalism, and I absolutely mean this when I wrote it, I absolutely mean this when I say it, and I'm just going to read the quote myself of my own writing. Your personal philosophy is more important that for you than mine. You are the master of your own life, and if you don't agree with my views, great. Define, understand, and implement your own. The biggest thing you can do is understand that you are in control of your life and that what you do matters. Those two factors have the greatest impact on individual survival across every demographic you can imagine. 
So if I'm going to tell you that if you don't agree with me and the way that I tell you to live to go figure out what works for you and do it and just take what you want from me, then I can't tell you don't live in an urban environment. Get out of New York City. Get out of Chicago. Get out of L.A. Get out of Jacksonville. I believe that's good advice, but I believe it's good advice for me. I believe it's good advice for most people. And I believe the problem with most of the people choosing to live in those locations is, A, they have no plan to get out. B, they're not paying attention to when they need to get out. And C, if they had to get out, they wouldn't know where to go. And D, if they had to stay put during a disaster, they wouldn't know what to do. Now, if you'll cover those four bases and, and live in an urban environment with eyes wide open instead of eyes wide shut, um, I think you can make a lot out of the urban environment. It's not for me. I don't like it. It makes me miserable. I don't even like to visit big cities. When I'm walking around a city like Chicago or D.C. or New York, there's things there that I find entertaining, but the entire time I don't feel like a natural human being. I am too surrounded by concrete. There's not enough green. Um, there's too many people that are too close to me, and, and that's a real problem for me. I have a... Uh, an almost uh, an almost like claustrophobic feeling, but I don't have it because of building or structures or anything else like that. I have it due to people. I used to do telecommunications work, and I would go down in these uh, underground. Basically, they felt like a crypt under buildings, under roads, and things like that to inspect installations or to take part in installations or to do some spicing of fiber cable. This is way, way back that I did this stuff, but it never bothered me. It never bothered me for an instant. As a mechanic, I would climb into these these huge diesel trucks into these tight areas and like up inside them and never felt claustrophobic, whether it was in the woods or uh, you know a dark space or you know, going down into coal mines as a, as a very young person with my father. Never felt claustrophobic. Put me in a group of, you know, a couple thousand people arm in arm, and I, I don't like it. I have a claustrophobic is the only term I can use feeling for it. Uh, and I just don't think it's a way that humans function well. But if you like it, then you like it. So when I say, okay, what is good about living in a true, and I don't mean suburban here. Remember, that's a different category. I'm not about urban. I'm talking in the cities, like right down in the most densely party populated areas of the cities. Big cities, one million plus populations or larger. Cities like Dallas, Fort Worth, Atlanta, Houston, um, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And those of you who are think a lot like me right now are going, nothing. There's nothing good about that. It all sucks. And, and I understand your feeling, but let's be honest and let's look at it and let's say if that's the kind of environment you either have to lose in or live in or because of certain things you choose to live in, what's good about it? One thing is it's incredibly resource rich. Now, those resources are completely dependent on continuous importation as far as the daily resources. But I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about if something goes wrong and you need to improvise something and you need a container or shelter or any type of thing, there's so much stuff that could be salvaged, scavenged, and used in a, in a really urban environment, more so than even a suburban environment. And uh, so there's a lot of resources there, both in good times and resources can be improvised in bad times from an, from you know from an improvisation standpoint. They're also the first to receive aid. If there's some kind of major calamity in a city with two and a half million people is without power, and the suburbs are also without power. Uh, they're going to focus on the most densely populated areas first and work their way out to the suburban, rural, you know, uh, type areas. So generally, you're your first to receive aid in any type of situation. Uh, there's also a huge density of social groups. 
If I want to get a group going out here in Hot Springs, the Hot Springs area, which is a fairly large small town is how I would describe Hot Springs, and then I'm in the rural part of that, kind of off the small town, there's a sizable population. There's, I think, almost 30,000 people in Hot Springs. Um, so you'd think that you know there'd probably be a permaculture group. There ain't. And it would probably take a lot of work to really get one going. I may try to do it, but you get my point. If you're in Los Angeles... You can find all kinds of people that want to discuss that issue. And whatever issue you're interested in, you'll find it there. There's a huge density of social groups. And it's, it's weird in some ways. You're going to hear me talk a lot about community today. And one of the things I've noticed in a lot of the urban environments is people, and this is true all the way into suburbia, generally will maybe not know a lot of their neighbors. But yet they have a lot of social groups with strong community binding them together They're just not the people that happen to live near each other. They have a, a community built on ideals. And, and there's something to be said for, you know, list 50 activities, list 50 ideologies, and if you have any one of them, you can probably find an existing group or easily create a group that can discuss and, and work on and evolve those. So there is that density of social group activity there. There's easy transportation options. Now, we've all heard horror stories about the subways and, and what have you, but you know, I used to work the D.C. market when I was in sales, and it was my favorite market to go to. I never drove to D.C. I would actually drive to Philadelphia, and I was living up near Allentown at the time, and I would drive to Philly. It was about an hour drive to Philly, and I would get on a train uh, at the train station, and I would take about a two-hour train ride down to D.C., Uh, so my entire commute to D.C. was about three hours. And then I had about eight sales reps that handled the D.C. Uh, area for me. And not just D.C., but the surrounding area in Maryland and, and Virginia. And there was a thing there called the Metro. And to me, in all the cities I've been to, as far as mass transit, uh, when it comes to subway trains, the Metro in D.C. is the best one I've ever seen. Easy to understand, reliable, fast, um, And the easy, easy nature of the navigation. You know where you want to go, man. Boom. And I could call all my reps that I had appointments with for that week that I was in there and say, pick me up here at this time. And I knew I was going to be there. And if you were living there, working there, what have you, you have that available. It's extremely affordable. I can see living in D.C. Uh, or Chicago or several other cities and maybe having a car but not using it very often. And I'm not trying to say polar bears, but there is a certain cost issue there and there's a certain convenience issue there it's nice to be if you want to go to a basketball game to not have to deal with the traffic to you know like boston is another example i had a sales rep up there and we would often go to celtics games and do client entertainment well we would drive into downtown boston it was a nightmare we drive to one of the train stations uh you know 15 20 minutes later you you walk out right in the downtown area Uh, you meet your people, you go to the game, we'd go to restaurants or bars afterward, and uh, take the train back out and never deal with the traffic. So that type of thing is cool. The help is generally close by. Uh, 911 is going to get you somebody showing up a lot quicker in the middle of, uh, of midtown Manhattan uh, than you're generally going to get if you live out in the sticks. It's not always a good thing. We'll get into the bad here in just a second. But in general, you get really fast response time from first responders, all things being equal in urban environments. You get quicker response times. Now, we all know there's parts of the urban environment that are really bad, and the cops don't even want to go there. I'm talking about the place that you would choose to live, not the place that you would be 
forced to live by uh, not having the means to live elsewhere. So I'm talking about living in a reasonable, decent lifestyle in the urban environment. Uh, and there is an abundance of materials. I said resource-rich at the beginning, but I'm now talking more about like anything you want to get your hands on. If you find a new recipe on TV and you want to make it, you go to the local market, you're probably going to find anything you could want as an ingredient. And anything else, from consumer goods to food to you name it, uh, the cities are the distribution hubs. It's where everything that's going to go into uh, an entire region of a state will generally move through certain big cities within that state. So that means that you have an abundance of availability. Well, let's talk about the bad. Uh, number one, in a big disaster, in a really big disaster, contrary to the mythology of you know um, the roving hordes going out and stealing potatoes, corn, and tomatoes from farmers, the cities and the urban areas are magnets for those in need during a disaster. If you really get things wiped out and people have to pick up and start walking somewhere, they don't go away from cities, they go towards them. Which means that what resources are there become strained quickly. Uh, when Katrina happened, and they had to send the people that they couldn't take care of in New Orleans somewhere else, did they send them to rural Texas? Did they send them to central Louisiana? Did they send them to rural Alabama? Did they send them to Montana? No. Where did they send them? Houston, the fifth largest city. I believe the fifth or sixth largest city now in the United States. That's where they sent people. So what you need to understand about cities is as times get tough, unless that city's been ground zero and blown to the ground, refugees go to cities. They don't go to vacant open spaces. All right? We want to believe that because it makes for good fan fiction when we have battles with mutant zombie bikers. But in the reality, the bigger the area, the more resources, the more of a magnet it is in a bad time. Uh, population density risks in general. Part of why I don't feel comfortable in that crowd of people arm in arm 2,000 strong or more is because there's a, there's just a danger there in of itself. Enough people interacting, people interact the wrong way, potential for mob violence, severe breakdowns. In a disaster, that density becomes an even greater risk of that. I won't go deep into it. I think we all understand what happens when the first couple rocks knock out the first couple shop windows and the people that threw the rocks aren't immediately cuffed and taken away. As soon as it's seen that you, oh, we can get away with this, uh, it starts this spiraling effect. Next is an expensive cost of living in, in safe areas. Sure, I can find you cheap places to live in Dallas, Texas. I get right in the middle of the city. I can find you one. You won't want to live there. Now we have guys that are doing it and proving it can be done and trying to change those communities like the urban farming guys. By the way, I'm interviewing them Friday and they should be on the show Tuesday next week. Uh, so, I mean, it's great when people do that, but is that what you want to do? Do you want to move into kind of the, uh, the really, the, you know, one of the worst of the worst areas where drive-by shootings go on? If you want to live in an urban area and you want to live in a rel relatively safe, clean neighborhood in an urban area, you're going to pay a lot of money for it. The next one is what I call government regulation density. This is a fact. The closer you get to a city, the closer you would get to the municipal offices that you know that house the ass clowns that run around inspecting everything and telling other people how to live their life. When you are in the middle of an urban environment, you have more regulation, more crap, more government, more bullshit to deal with because you're paying a higher property tax, which is another downside, and that's what funds all that shit. So you're right there in the ground zero of Ask Clown Central. 
The closer you get to courthouses, municipal buildings, etc., the more regulation you're going to have. And the biggest density of them is in urban areas. The next one is food scarcity. Now, you might look at this and go, no, there's plenty of food. You go into a city and there's market after market after market and huge amounts of food. But there's millions of people consuming that food. And most of that food is on a 72-hour rotation period. And that means that if anything cuts off the food supply for 72 hours, the shelves go bare. And then the reality is they go bare within 12 of the potential of a disaster. We've all taken pictures and sent them to me, right? You guys do it all the time whenever there's a snowstorm or whatever. The greater the urban density, the quicker that, that factor occurs. You go into these, all these little mini markets and things like that. There's not a lot of big shopping markets in downtown New York. But when the snow's coming and they, people know they're going to be shut in for a few days, uh, man, they wipe those things out. And the reality is, because there's so many little ones distributed throughout, it shouldn't be that way. Because the beauty of New York is you, you can walk to something no matter what you, you know, no matter what you want, you can probably walk two or three blocks and find it. So people, even when there's snow, as long as you can get a path through the snow, you should be able to walk. You don't need a car. The subways generally run, but yet even it wipes out. So you got a, you've got a problem there whenever there's any type of a disaster. The crime rates, even in good times. You know, I lived in what I would call barring on rural, small town, uh, somewhere right between the, the rural and small town living when I lived in a, near uh, Allentown. Now, Allentown is, a, is a, a crappy small city is the way I'll describe it, and it's sad that it's gotten that way, and I can explain to you why that it would be extremely politically charged and people would be angry even though it's true, but there's a reason that Allentown, beyond the steel uh, industry falling, that Allentown has become what it's become, and it involves an exchange made with New York City, and I'll leave it at that. Um, but, you know, but where I lived, which was, you know, quite a bit north of Allentown, was this, this cool little Norman Rockwell-like town. I mean, it was really beautiful, and when we would read the local paper, the crime blotter, right, where they tell you people were arrested for and all, were things like some kids were caught, you know, spray painting the school. Or, you know, somebody stole, you know, somebody else's, uh, you know, corn and got caught on mischief night. I mean, it was just, when you read it, it was almost comical. You, you almost didn't see these things as crime. They were more like mischief activities of youth. And, you know, there was the occasional neighbor that shot their neighbor. That happens anywhere. But it, that was like, that was like a front page news story for two weeks if somebody got killed. Where, you know, you have somebody's getting killed every day in the big cities. Every single one of them. So there, there's just a higher crime level as we increase density. Uh, next is that space is at a premium. So even if you can afford property, um, affording property big enough to grow anything for yourself, to put in a greenhouse, to do anything like that, you know, you might be relegated to rooftop gardening or what have you. And the next is many city governments are nearly bankrupt. I'd say most big cities in the United States of America today are nearly bankrupt. And as those cities begin to fail and those services begin to fail, a lot of the things that seem so nice about those cities will start to not look so nice, is the only way I can put it. And then you're going to have, you know, huge unemployment issues within those cities as all these city workers begin to lose their jobs and city retirees begin to lose retirements or have retirements and benefits cut and services get cut. So the bad of the cities going bankrupt is not so much what it looks like today, it's what it has the potential to look like tomorrow and has a potential to be really freaking bad. So there you go, the good, the bad on the city. So let's talk about where most Americans actually live today, the, the, the most popular choice to be made. See, I, and I think I'll explain kind of like why I like the small town rural to remote 
end of the spectrum. I think suburbia is proof that most people actually do. You've got your young 20-somethings that love living in the city and having trendy neighborhoods and shopping and like to drink $6 coffee drinks and go to shows. and, and th that's, a, that's, a, that's a group of the population, that yuppie Gen... I don't I guess it's not X. Gen X is me now, right? We're old now. Uh, we, have, we have Gen X now has uh, Time Life Music making classic collections for us. <laughs> That's so sad. I, I I guess I never realized that. I've never considered myself a part of Gen X because I just never fit in with. It was always kind of. I was always kind of back with that other group, you know, that they call the tweener generation between the baby boomer boomers and X. My wife's even from that tweener generation. So, but my generation it was X. So I guess like you know now it's it's like the Gen Y to the Internet Native generation, they call it, in the demography. Uh, they like that, and, and that that's fine. And there's some people that live their whole lives and they like that. But most people really don't. They might, you know, what do they say about New York City? Great place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. That's how most people feel about all cities. And so what they do is they like, you know, the job opportunities and all the stuff that goes with city living, but they also want kind of their own little farm, right? And that's what the original suburban layout was designed so that everybody could have their own little farm. That's what it was like. It was like, how do we get all these farmers that is, we're getting mechanized stuff uh, to do their jobs, to come to the cities and work in the factories. Because understand when that move was happening on, there was a good life to be had in suburban and urban environments. You could go get a job at a mill or a factory or something like that and make what we would say the equivalent today of $25, $35 an hour, maybe more. I mean, some of these folks were coming out of school age 15, 16, not even getting a high school diploma and getting a job in a factory. And within a few years, they could be making uh, a living that would be similar to what we would make a living today doing at 50 bucks an hour, even though they were being paid less. But how do we get those people to come here? Because uh, they, like, they like where they have it. So we'll give them all a lot. Right, And we'll give them a front lawn that looks like a pasture, and we'll give them a back lawn, and they can turn that into their garden. That really was part of the design scheme. Uh, we've lost it, but when you're in suburbia and everybody has trees and the sidewalks and the kids are riding bicycles, you feel like you're in a small town, but the city's right there. And that's part of the good of suburbia. Generally, they have solid neighborhood structures. Now, understand there's degrees in all of this. There are suburban neighborhoods. Um, that aren't really in the urban density areas, that I can show you in the Fort Worth, Dallas area, uh, Forest Hill springs to mind. The houses are nice. Um, they're generally well kept, but it's a high crime area. It's the, 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 the sprawl has spilled in, and, and you know you can go one street and everybody lives like Leave it to Beaver, and you can go one more street and you might as well be downtown in some of the worst areas of Dallas-Fort Worth. And then you go one more street and it turns back. But it doesn't really look any different. right? It's just who's living there, how the people are protecting their own streets, where the cops choose to enforce the law, uh, some very minor differences. So when I say any of these things are not absolute today, please understand that. But when you look at uh, neighborhoods in suburbia, they're generally very solid neighborhoods. There's a police force that polices things. Neighbors are generally not... Is close. They don't have the kind of community they do in more um, small town rural environments, but they will generally look out for each other. If you see like somebody breaking a window, generally in the suburbs, somebody will at least pick the phone and call nine one one, and somebody will show up. Not necessarily in time to stop the crime, but that is there, and that's a deterrent. 
Um, land is sufficient for home growing because of what I said earlier. Most suburbs, you have a lawn where you can, you know, either grow something in the front or backyard. We'll talk about the bad and, you know, front yard gardens being banned in some areas and stupid shit like that. But in general, most suburban areas, even if you, you can find some houses that are too shaded or the lawns are too small, for, you know, whatever you're willing to spend, for a decent home in that suburban environment, you can find a yard that you can make very, very productive from a self-sufficiency standpoint. I'm talking a garden, maybe maybe some, some bees, uh, maybe some rabbits. I mean, you can actually turn most one-tenth or larger suburban lots into something that might provide as much as 50% of your needs if nobody gets in your way, and we'll get to that in a second. It can be affordable. It absolutely can be affordable. When I moved to, uh, to back to the Arlington area, uh, I had sold a house and I made a lot of money on the house uh, in Pennsylvania because we bought it really, really smart. We did a lot of improvements. We made a good profit. And I was like, I'm going to go equity heavy and I'm going to set my price limit at about $120,000, $130,000 in Arlington. And a lot of my friends said, how do you, you know, you, dude, you left here four years ago. Things have changed. Property's a lot more expensive. I, I don't think you're going to find anything fitting with what you want for that price. And we found something no problem for 120 So you can be very affordable in the suburbs from a property purchase standpoint, not necessarily from a tax standpoint, but at least the cost of the property itself. It's also reasonable access to career opportunities. You know, a lot of the stuff is in the cities. There's, you know, tons of people that live in Arlington, Texas, work in Dallas or work in Fort Worth, but it's reasonable access. You can drive in. Uh, you can commute in with public transportation. You can get to the career activities. And generally, a lot of the suburban cities that grow up around the big urban centers have a lot of career opportunities as well. So for the young couple that's 20, 30, early 40s, still building that life, still putting money away, still putting the kids through school, you can have a really good job. Now, there's less good jobs than there used to be. Manufacturing's down no matter where we're talking about uh, within the United States. But for people that work hard and excel and decide that whatever I do, I'm going to be the best at it, there's a lot of career opportunities in the suburbs and the urban areas. Um, it's also generally... Generally speaking, remember, no absolutes here. Most suburban environments have low crime rates, if not at least low compared to their, the urban areas which they encompass. So I guarantee you uh, that my suburban area in Arlington had a lower crime rate than downtown Fort Worth or downtown Dallas. Or for that matter, kind of the centralized portion of Arlington itself. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth is kind of a weird one because Arlington is a city uh, between the two that's as big as a lot of what people consider large cities elsewhere. Uh, and Grand Prairie kind of fits that. Irving definitely fits that. Las Colinas fits that. So um, it, it's kind of a little bit different of an environment. I think Minneapolis-St. Paul has some mid-cities that are kind of like that as well. But you know, even when I lived in Jacksonville, Florida as a kid, we lived in an apartment complex with a relatively high uh, population density, only a few miles from the school I went to. Um, but there was a lot less crime there than downtown, where my dad owned a service gas station and tire shop. Um, so when you move into the suburbs, you generally get lower crime rates, at least compared to the urban area which they encompass. The next one is you have access to good parts of the urban 
with less of the bad. You want to go see a basketball game and you live in Dallas, you know, near Dallas, you can drive and go see the Mavericks play. Uh, there's several, you know, uh, uh, what they call them, D-League, NFL, NBA D-League teams in the area. The same with the Rangers. You've got the Rangers and you've got like up in Frisco, uh, you've got one of their, uh, their minor league, uh, farm teams. So there's all kinds. That's just sport, for sports fans. Uh, there was arena football in Frisco, Texas. The, the league went under, but that was there. I actually had season tickets to that. There's all kinds of stuff that are cool about cities. There's concerts and, and, and events and uh, social activities and museums and art centers and all of the stuff that, that humanity has you know created either from an entertainment, educational, or a hybrid of the two. That's that's more prevalent in most cities than in in most small towns. And when you live in suburbia, you have you can go in, you can enjoy them, and then you can go the hell home and get away from there and go back to your nice, quiet suburb. The next thing is you do have pretty fast first responder times. When a, a major neighborhood is without power or services uh, in a you know a, a suburban city like Arlington, Texas, or uh, like parts of Jacksonville, Florida, or parts of Philadelphia, PA that wouldn't be considered urban, they get pretty fast response times. They get prioritized over all of the further outlying areas. Uh, there's generally local police uh, stations for the smaller suburban town or uh, remote stations off the main urban town if they're covered by like Dallas, for instance. You got sub suburbs in Dallas that even though uh, they're covered by Dallas PD, they have their own little substations. So they've got substations for fire, they've got substations for police, and they have the access to the infrastructure and resources of the larger department. So fast and, and generally fairly um, uh, competent first responders. Now, People would say, well, look at Katrina. New Orleans was a big city, and their first responders were completely incompetent. Their first responders were wiped the hell out. They were right in the middle of ground zero with them. Uh, so, And they were completely overwhelmed by the situation. No matter what you have in place, you can be overwhelmed. But that's kind of the good of suburban. Now the bad. High taxes. Uh, I, I can't... I can't get my head around that I used to find it acceptable before we got rid of our home in Arlington that I paid more in property taxes property taxes than the mortgage payment that I have now. Uh, that that just seems ridiculous to me at this point. I, I can't believe I was ever acceptable enough with that to allow it to happen. But I lived where my family wanted to live and where my son wanted to live and near our family. And, uh, and it wasn't a bad life. But when I think about how much money was taken away that I worked so hard for to pay taxes uh, just for the privilege of living there, it makes me ill. Uh, regulation density is still very high in the suburbs. It's not as bad as living in, you know, kind of your downtown urban areas, but there's plenty of inspectors, there's plenty of people to cause problems. Uh, my buddy Hal, who passed away last year, one of the last things he did to his house to improve it was he put a pool in the backyard. And he had this, um, like, covered area off the side of the house. Well, when he got his permit to put his pool in, the inspector came out and said, well, I'll give you your permit for your pool, but that, that overhead structure has to come down. It's a code violation. And he was never even able to actually explain to him why the thing had to come down. And Hal was thinking, well, maybe I just don't even need a pull. And basically the guy was like, well, it doesn't work that way. You can have your pull permit or you can not get your pull permit. But now that I know that's there, it's coming down. And then this jackass went up and down the street looking for similar structures and found four in the neighborhood and made everybody take them down. And he still really didn't explain why they had to be taken down, but everybody did comply with that. That's stupid. 
All right, this, this is one like these things were dangerous or whatever. I think it had something to do with side lot easements or something like that. Where, but these things weren't really preventing any kind of easement access. No one needed any easement access, and it's because it's exactly what it was: it's easement access because this neighborhood that Hal lived in had what's called a zero lot line. And those of you not familiar with that, this is something you want to stay away from in suburbia, as far as I'm concerned. With a zero lot line, let's say the uh, if you're standing at your house looking to the front. The right side of your house is sitting on the property line, so that your neighbor's fence might not even, you know, like if your house goes into the backyard, it won't even go. Like the fence will come to your house, and like your wall is their fence to the to the left of them as they walk into their backyard. That type of thing. So because the the house sat on the property line, there was a larger easement on the side where the house didn't sit on the property line. So basically you had space between one house and abutted to the next house is the way these things work out. And it's just an insane way, but builders can, you know, on each street can fit two or three more houses in by doing this this way rather than just doing smaller lots. It's some kind of efficiency thing. So, you know, that just doesn't happen where I live now. You know, no one's going to come out and make me take an over uh, an overhead cover that's at least properly constructed down, and they probably wouldn't make me take it down if it was improperly constructed. In fact, they wouldn't even know it was there or care or come look. And if it fell on me, it's my own fault. Um, so there's a lot more regulation density uh, in the uh, in the suburb suburbs. Uh, they also are full of what are called my, my evil nemesis, the homeowners association. I won't go off on that today. Just say I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. And it's getting in a lot of suburbs where it's very hard to find a house in a nice area without a freaking HOA because they're invasive like a virus. And anybody who started an HOA, if you come see me and you tell me you started an HOA and it's a normal HOA, not some kind of new one that actually prevents the stupidity, duck after you tell me because I'm going to punch you in the face. Every single person behind the starting of an HOA needs at least one person to punch you in the face for, for creating additional regulation and, and interfering with people's lives. And that's as far as I'll go with that. Uh, right up there with the HOA and right up there with the regulation density is the nosy and meddling neighbor. Uh, maybe your, your, your city technically is not supposed to have chickens, but maybe nobody in the city government has time or cares if you have a chicken. But if your nosy-ass neighbor looks over and sees your chicken, even though it doesn't cause them any problems, and starts making phone calls, uh, then somebody will come up and stop you from doing that. Generally, the more dense your population and the way suburbs are, you might go out your back door and you might be able to see in a five or six backyards of two-story, maybe more. Neighbors see that. Things that nobody really cares about. One pain in the ass cares about about, makes a phone call, makes your life miserable. That's part of what I don't like about the suburbs. Population density also relatively high. All the things we said about urban population densities, a little bit less, but, but most of them just as bad. Uh, many suburbs are parts of smaller cities, surrounding cities, smaller towns, or parts of the urban centers. So again, a nice suburban area, still under the Dallas city limits, subject to the same problems that come from being associated with Dallas, even though it's not the same living environment, Dallas is nearly bankrupt. Little Rock's nearly bankrupt. Central Falls, Rhode Island, little bitty city up there in Rhode Island, is bankrupt. Jefferson County, Alabama, um, near bankruptcy. So all of these big cities that are going bankrupt affects the suburbs, and in some situations, it's a smaller city that's like the whole city is a suburb. I would classify Arlington that way. Arlington is a city, an independent, uh, on some level, sovereign city with its own mayor, its own council, what have you, but it is a suburb 
of almost Dallas and Fort Worth at the same time. And if Dallas and Fort Worth implode, all of that overflow is going to hurt them just as bad. And again, then Arlington itself can go bankrupt. I, I don't know how they, what they tax people. I don't know how they possibly can. But if there's a way to do it, they'll probably figure it out. So you've got the bankruptcy threat. Let's move on to small towns. And this is the one that I think most Americans are going to be the happiest in. I think most Americans are going to be happier in small towns than true rural, uh, especially if you grew up in any kind of a, a town, city type environment where you're used to being surrounded by more people and the good parts that we've talked about thus far. So small town, what is, what is the, the good stuff of a small town? It's almost all of the good of suburbia with less of the bad. So you get all of the good stuff in suburbia, and you get less problems with HOAs. You get less problems with nosy uh, neighbors. You get less population density. You get less taxes, right? I mean, so it's like all we just said. Uh, generally, they're also less regulation dense. Uh, unfortunately, that's changing. A lot of what you would call the true small town. And the, to me, the difference between a small town and suburbia is often what's around it. So you could have a town with 10,000 people. And you could have a suburban town with 10,000 people. And the chief difference between those 10,000 people is, one, the true small town, you're a little less dense. The, the land area those 10,000 people occupy is a little bit bigger. And in the, the more densely populated suburb of 10,000, it's adjacent to, attached to, or surrounded by, or part of a larger city infrastructure numbering in the millions. Right, So I don't really consider the little small town that's four hours from any major city to be a suburb. Right, because there's no city for it to be a suburb of the urban, right? So when you get into there, you generally get less regulation. But unfortunately, a lot of people from the bigger cities are moving to the smaller towns to get away from the big cities and then going, well, that's not how we used to do things. Well, why is it okay for my neighbor to have a chicken? Maybe I need to go to the town council and do something about that. And a lot of these small towns are letting this happen because they're just caught unaware. They're not expecting it. Nobody's made or bitched about this, you know, made a scene or bitched about this stuff for, for 50 years. Nobody alive can remember any time that anybody ever complained about a freaking chicken. But then in come the yuppies and all of a sudden the chickens and they take over. They're good at organization. They band together. They find all the people in the small town that didn't like the chicken in the first place. They make the most noise and all of a sudden chicken is off limits. Or And that's just an example with the chicken, right? It can be anything. So unfortunately, in a lot of small towns, there's getting to be more and more of the regulation pain in the assness. So if you live in a small town or you move in a small town, you need to fortify that low-regulation environment. You need to be active. You need to keep your ears to the ground. You need to pay attention. Another story. When we lived in our little hamlet, little beautiful Norman Rockwell small town of Northampton, Pennsylvania, uh, we had a neighbor that lived in, I went and introduced myself to everybody in the neighborhood. There was only about, I'd say, 15 houses in our whole little neighborhood, and they all had a minimum one-acre lot. Uh, that was how the area was developed. And I said, after meeting the next-door neighbor, this old lady and this old man, to my wife, they're the only ones here that are a problem. And it was based on a comment they made about some trees that shared our property line, saying, if they bother you, you can trim them. And, and like nobody would even worry about something like that, uh, unless you were a land freak that was worried about, you know, controlling certain things. Well, a guy that lived on the corner where you turned into our neighborhood off the main road wanted to build a garage. And he brought in a professional architect. I mean, this guy wasn't doing this crappy, but he needed a zoning variance, uh, due to an issue with, uh, the utility easement 
out on the main road, which was not what affected this this lady and this man at all in our neighborhood. And these two people are, are probably, thankfully, both in the ground by now because we don't need people like this. We don't. I don't wish them any direct will ill, but when they're gone, I sure as hell don't miss them. So he got all this together, put together this great legal package, and went down to a town meeting. And we didn't even know there was a town meeting. And no one from our neighborhood showed up. And they, he laid out his whole thing with his architect and the scale model and exactly what it would look like and brought the actual architect with him. I mean, this guy did way more than I would have ever thought to do. And the whole council goes, well, I don't have a problem with that. And this old lady and this old man say, well, we have a problem with that. No one in our neighborhood wants this garage. It's going to look bad when people pull into our neighborhood and whatever. So he didn't get his variance. All right, now that's a small town. And because, and this is the big thing. Had he told every, and, and he was under the impression because these two people had lived there the longest and they had this seniority complex in their head that when they said a lot of people in the neighborhood had problems with it, that they did. And we didn't find out about this until later on. So had we known, we could have all went down there and said, they're full of crap, we don't care. And I guarantee you if 10 people from the neighborhood had showed up and said, hey, we have no problem with this and it was just this one old bitty, it, it would have worked out for them. So you got to temper this less regulation with, the fact that there's not that many people, one or two people can make a, a difference in a negative way if they're not checked. So you need to be prepared to check. Now, here's the here's the happy part of the story. Um, on the other side of his house, because he had an acre, he didn't need a zoning variance. And it wasn't going to be attached to his house. And after he had lost so much money, he paid all this money for the architecture work and to file the paperwork and all, he didn't have enough money to build it the way he wanted it. It didn't really fit on his house on the other side. So... He got one of those great big, like, giant aircraft-looking Kwanzaa hut things to put in his garage and shop. And since we were out in an unincorporated area and he didn't need a variance, there wasn't nothing she could do about it. So instead of getting a nicely integrated garage, at, she had this huge building, right? And, and, like, it just bugged them. Like, they hated it, but there was nothing they could do about it. When I heard this whole story, this old lady Agnes, I said to her, I said, I bet you that garage is looking pretty good right now. Right? And I mean, that's the kind of crap that can go on in small towns with this encroachment of regulation if we don't stay on it. Generally speaking, lower crime rates, I won't say a lot about that. It kind of speaks for itself. I've mentioned it already. Generally, more self-sufficient people. When I've lived in small towns, true small towns, not rural, but small towns, most people have some level of preparedness. They at least have a blackout kit in the house. They at least have more than a couple days' worth of food. A lot of urban environments, you go to somebody's house, uh, if they had to stay there for two days, they're out of food. Very seldom is that the case in the suburbs, but it's never the case in the small towns. They're used, it's, it's kind of a big deal. I gotta get in the car and I gotta go pretty far to go get some stuff, so I'm not gonna live on the edge. So, you're able to ride through disasters better in small towns because people live in a way that just predisposes them to some level of preparedness, even if they don't call it that. Uh, they're generally more affordable to live in, uh, with lower taxes, sometimes. Depends. Is this a small town in Kansas? Is this a small town in Connecticut? Is this a small town in Kansas that's two hours from Kansas City? Uh, or, uh, you know, a small town in Connecticut that is, uh, you know, a, a few miles from, from Hartford? You know, I mean, not really in a suburban part of Hartford, but people could commute to Hartford, and people that work in Hartford could easily commute back and forth. That changes everything. So, but in most instances, you'll find... Lower taxes, and even in the Hartford example, I guarantee you that small town two hours from Hartford is going to be lower taxes than the, sub the suburb full of yuppies adjacent to Hartford. So it's a comparative thing. 
uh, often still has reasonable access to the cities. I define that as two to three hours. And sometimes it's an hour. It all depends. And the closer, the less of a true small town it is, and the more of a suburb it becomes. And somewhere between the two is this gray area where you can't tell, is this a suburb or is it a small town? And it's more about the mentality of the people that live there and how they operate and organize themselves and the functions of their government and things like that. But there is a gray area where these two, two overlap. And it's up to you to make the determination for yourself. But I say uh, really one to three hours is what I'll look at as reasonable city access. Once you have to go more than three hours to get to what I call a true city, um, you know something the size of at least Little Rock, and I'll tell you that Little Rock isn't much uh, as cities go compared to a lot of cities in uh, in the United States. It's, it's a very... Mall city, I, you know, it doesn't have an it doesn't have a professional sports team. I think the total population, including the surrounding areas, you know, kind of its suburbs, is about 1.6 million or something like that. So that's that's kind of a minimum level that I would call a, an urban city environment. So if you're more than one to three hours from that, you're generally not even in kind of that small town. You're starting to move into true rural. Because uh, you don't have any access to some of the resources that come in through the cities in a reasonable amount of time. And reasonable being something you define for yourself. You also have what I would call reasonable response times for first responders. Even your more isolated small towns, your, you know, your population is five to 15,000 and, and, and what have you, and your surrounding rural areas and all, they generally have, you know, competent fire departments, competent police departments, competent ambulance, paramedics, EMTs. Uh, so when something happens, they're able to respond. Often they have to, they have to, you know, if it's if, the, if it's Kansas and there's a tornado, they have to put their heads down like everybody else and wait for it to end. But in the aftermath, the people and the first responders come out, and you get reasonable response times from your first responders. There's also generally reasonable employment opportunities. Now, if you are a you know neurobiologist, there might not be a lot of opportunity for you. But for the average person, there's reasonable career opportunities. It may not be the same. In fact, it will not be the same as Dallas or Houston or Atlanta. But you can make a reasonable living if you're very good at what you do and you market yourself effectively and you, you know, you, you're a good employee. Or if you want to build a business, it's often a better place to build a traditional brick and mortar business than in the city. Because if you can make a name for yourself, you get a lot of kind of the old style viral marketing with friends telling friends. If you are an entrepreneur and you can do most of what you do online, it is one of the best environments in the world that you can be in because it's affordable to set up your operation. And if your operation is not geographically dependent, why would you pay more money? You know, I don't, why do I need to be in the city to do the survival podcast? And the answer is simply, I don't. So if you have any kind of intangible business, intellectual property business, any type of business is not dependent on the economy you exist in, it's a really great place to be. Um, next is it has access to remote and rural areas. So all the things we're about to talk about that are good for remote and rural areas, generally small towns, you know, there's somewhere there's national forest or state forest or state parkland or somewhere you can get the hell away, somewhere you can hunt, somewhere you can fish. Now, a lot of big cities have that too, but it's not the same. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Where I lived in Arlington, I could get out on Joe Pool Lake every single day if I wanted to. 
But there were so many pleasure boaters out there, and, and most of them were local. This is not tourist activity, and the population density was heavy, and I could still hear traffic everywhere, and I was limited to what I could do. Sure, I could go out there and fish, but I sure as heck couldn't go out there and set up a duck blind and start knocking mallards down in the fall. Right, So there's much more of that type of truly get away from it all access in your small towns. Hunting, fishing, backpacking, hiking, and resources to use in tough times. Now remember, I say if you think you're going to bug out to the National Forest, if we have you know the major zombie apocalypse, shit hits the fan, you're deluding yourself and you are. But in like just times where you're trying to make ends meet, and being able to do a little bit of off-the-land foraging and things like that, you generally have greater access in the small town moving further out uh, from there. You also have strong cultures of community, as the way I describe it. I don't really describe it as strong community, because here's to me what strong community means. Um, when you move into an area, if there's strong community there, you're, you're welcomed into it quickly. And small towns are a little bit better about this than rural, uh, which is where we're going to go next. But it takes a little bit more time to be accepted into communities in small town towns than suburbs and urban communities. Uh, but the communities are generally closer to home, so people do know their neighbors and what have you. And sometimes when you move into small towns, you're quickly brought in. But it's about cultures of community. It's expected that there would be community. And and that, I think, is really a strength. And I don't think it takes that long to be accepted in, especially the small towns. They're kind of the, the quickest to take you in that have it close to home. Where the urban communities, suburban communities, you can find a group with like ideals somewhere, and when you show up, you're in until you do a reason to be out. But they're 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 less likely to have a community where everybody goes over to Joe's house on the third the third Sunday in June and has a barbecue. It happens. It just doesn't happen as much. So it's you know, as in all things, there's shades of gray in between. What are the bad of small towns? Well, you have ten thousand people around. You still have potential for mob attitude and shit at the fan. You have a lot less potential because people are a lot less likely to steal from someone when they know them on a first name basis, and when everybody knows them on a first name basis and knows you did it, and you're not going to be able to live here anymore because the roots are deeper in a small town. Things are held in check, but when you put people in a desperate enough situation, you still have the potential for that mob attitude. Um, there's less career opportunity. Now, even in spite of what I just said, there's less career opportunity, especially for the, quote, employee, unquote. Small towns are great to start businesses, to be entrepreneurially minded, to do service level uh, jobs, to do service level businesses, air conditioning, heating, things like that, uh, carpeting. When I talk to people in the, in the Hot Springs area, uh, that I've had to do any kind of work on my home, from help with construction to remodeling. Are you guys busy? We are so busy we can't keep up. But yet, in any kind of normal, like you know, typical blue collar job, it's kind of hard to find a job. But in that service level industry, there's enough people to fuel it. So if you're an entrepreneur and you can go into that, there's a real opportunity there. But if you are just, I want to get a job, I want good benefits, I want good pay, I want you know to show up every day at 8, go home every day at 5, I don't want no additional responsibilities, I don't want to sweat too much, I want to work on a computer, live in an office, uh, I want to work on an assembly line, whatever. If you're that type of conventional in-the-box employee, there's a hell of a lot less opportunity in the small towns. There's less resources available because you don't have the big shipping hub. And, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Um, so there's not as much stuff 
to, to, to be able to acquire. Now, maybe that's a good thing for you, but when you want certain things, they can be hard to find. Uh, many still have still significant regulation density. Small towns, like I talked about, I already explained some of the things there with, you know, things like the neighbor that stopped the zoning variants and the chicken issues and everything else. More and more these small towns have people, again, moving to them from suburban and urban environments that leave those environments because they've had enough and then they bring all the bullshit with them. If somebody moves into your small town like that, send them home. Say, you know what, if you don't like it here because this isn't like Atlanta, go back to Atlanta. You moved here to get away from Atlanta. Please don't bring Atlanta with you. Nothing against Atlanta. That could be Dallas, Los Angeles, San Francisco, on and on and on. It goes Philadelphia, New York City. Any city could go in there. Um, the other thing is a lot of small towns are almost bankrupt too. I mean, there, there's municipal bankruptcy ready to run through this country, so all the stuff I've already said about that. So let's move out to true rural. This is, this is where I live. This is what I consider paradise for me, but I still think most people would actually be happier in a small town. Let's go over the good. Why am I here? Why do I live here? Um, number one, um, the, the beauty of, of rural to me is absolutely the most affordable living you can find and still have the general resources that one would expect from a town, from a city, from a county. So we have affordable living and we kind of are really in a place where I don't have maybe as much resource available to me as somebody in the suburbs or a small town, but it's there if I really need it and the suburbs or a small town ain't that far away. All right, so I can I can afford myself of those if I want to, but it doesn't cost me an arm and a leg to live here, and that 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 goes for everything, including property taxes. So the land's cheap and the taxes are cheap because they don't provide me with much. So if I don't get provided with much, I don't have to pay much in property taxes. You want to see your property taxes go down? Live on a dirt road. If you live on a dirt, sand, gravel road, um, your property taxes will be less than somebody who has the exact same house, the exact same land, two miles away from you, whose road is paved. You gotta give up something to get something, right? Um, very strong community. And a community that I've found in most instances takes you in quickly. Um, except in certain areas. There's certain areas that are notorious in rural environments for not taking people in quickly. That way you'll always be treated nice, but you're always an outsider. Appalachia is one of those areas. Uh, parts of Tennessee, parts of Virginia, parts of West Virginia. I know people that have lived in those areas uh, personally. Uh, some that have lived there, their families have been there 20 years, and they're still an outsider in the minds of the people around them. They're not ostracized, they're not punished, nobody throws eggs at their house or anything, but they're still not really part of the community the way that other people are. The only way they're going to be part of that community is all the people that remember when they moved there have to grow old and die, and all the people that are alive have to just have seen them as always being there. It almost takes a generation in some areas. In other areas, like where I live now, every single person when we finally moved permanently to where we are, came down and said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. We've been waiting for you to be here. We had one family come out. We've been praying for you all to move here. I, I, I've never even heard anything like that before. Uh, so it, it, it's dependent on where you go with their strong community. If something goes wrong, everybody comes together. Uh, I, there was a wreck that I, I, I helped out with uh, uh, with some traffic blocking while the other folks got a lady out of a car. She had crashed inside the road. By the time the ambulance got there, half the dadgone mountain was standing out there call, making phone calls to the lady's family so that her kids could come down, talking to each other and saying, well, there's this bad situation, but hi, I'm so-and-so. I've never met you before. Oh, you're the guy the one guy said to me, oh, you're the guy with that big diesel truck. I've been wanting to meet you. That's you know something that's really ingrained in rural environments because you have to depend on each other because of some of the negative things we'll talk about in a minute. Low regulation density. Nobody really gives a damn what you do. 
as long as you don't bother anybody else, you're pretty much left alone. Uh, there's certain laws and codes and regulations that we all have to comply with wherever we are. Some of them are legitimate, some of them are illegitimate, but there's a hell of a lot less out in a rural environment. Low taxes and land costs, I already kind of talked about, um, but really affordable living as well. So it's not just the taxes and the land costs. Generally, there's so much available that you can afford yourself of as far as natural resources that you can cut a lot of your expenses. And if you have a reasonable income, you have a lot of purchasing power within the community. So affordable living as well. Uh, there's really great native preparedness. Native preparedness to me means if something happens and nobody was even thinking about it, And people just have to go, okay, you know, how many people have generators? How many people have some backup uh, gasoline? How many people, uh, if they live in an area where it's snow, have some type of apparatus for removing snow, like a plow or a plow attachment or a snowmobile uh, in, in those areas? How many people um, have all the phone numbers to all their neighbors? How many people uh, know what to do if somebody's home is on fire? How many people know anything that we talk about from the mundane to the insane What level of response would there be in the community and preparedness in the community even without organized preparedness, even without modern survival thinking, just the way people live every day? And in rural areas, far more than small towns, definitely more than urban, suburban areas, very, very high uh, native preparedness because sometimes you have to have it. So it doesn't take people long to figure out, I need a generator if I might go three days without power, and that might happen a couple times a year uh, at either very, very cold or very, very hot times. Right? So the native preparedness is extremely high. Awesome access to the wild areas, again, uh, just like I said about small towns, but even more so. Access to a wild area for me. Walk out the front door, take ten steps around the house, and look, there you are. So... The, the wild areas, the hunting, the fishing, the, the outdoor living, uh, the native resources, they're there uh, in, in a true rural environment. Access to larger towns or small cities. You're still generally in true rural environments. You might actually be, you might be closer to a big city in a rural environment than somebody in a small town is, is to a big city. There's all these little pockets of rural America that are still left out there, and some of them might be an hour and a half from one of the biggest cities, but there's no suburbs linking them. There's these islands, these pockets in places like that. So you can generally get access to stuff. It just takes a little bit more time, but it's there. Um, law enforcement officers are generally what I call, quote, laid back, unquote. Um, when you deal with a county sheriff that handles a rural environment over something going on, you didn't know you weren't supposed to do it. He generally comes out and goes, look, you can't do this. And you go, okay, I didn't know. And he goes, all right, and you shake hands. And you, you talk to him, and he says, so you're new here. And, and I've already had that experience once. And it was a very, very pleasant experience. I got pulled over here uh, by a sheriff. And uh, we talked about sheriff's reserve while he was running my license to make sure I wasn't a fugitive from justice or something like that. And he certainly didn't write me a ticket. Um, and he was very, very welcoming and was telling me about some of the stuff in the area I didn't know about. And I generally don't get that experience when dealing with law enforcement officers in the middle of Dallas. And to be fair to them, they're dealing with a whole lot more shit. So that's why they are the way they are. And if they've been there 10 or 15 years and, and every third person they pull over has got a gun under the seat or on dope or something, um, they have a tendency to, to apply that mentality to everybody because they don't know when they're going to deal with it again. And... You know, unfortunately, some of these guys may be a little bit too laid back. They may be a little bit too comfortable with their jobs. Uh, but from the person on the other side of it dealing with them, I like them that way. I like being able to talk to a law enforcement officer and feel like the man's being helpful instead of just digging into my ass because I have a chicken. 
right? And a lot of the, and to be fair to police officers, you guys know I support you. Um, a lot of times you guys are forced to do things you don't want to do. There ain't no cop, I don't believe anywhere. There ain't no cop from one end of this country to the other, from Florida to Washington and from Maine to California or in Hawaii or Alaska, probably in Canada or anywhere in the world. There ain't no police officer anywhere that wants to go out to a house and tell some lady you have to get rid of your chickens or your rabbits. If you know one, please tell me who they are. They don't need to be a cop. But they'll do it when they're told to and they have to and they have to enforce the law. Law officers do not you know, write law. But there's a difference in a big city cop and a small town cop. There's a big difference in a county sheriff in a rural area uh, than a sheriff's department officer that's dealing in one of the high drug areas like Dade County, Florida. There just is. And it is a more... Um, it is a better relationship to have with local law enforcement. And it's easier to have that positive relationship. Uh, and, you know, they're smaller departments, so it doesn't take long before you pretty much know all the ones that work in your area. And they know you. And that has definite advantages. Less potential for confusion. Better communications. I'd like to see it everywhere. It's just easier in these areas, in the, you know, right in with the next uh, uh, positive. Lower population densities. I don't like lots of people. Lots of people don't like lots of people. So you got to go where there ain't lots of people. And then your potential for mob violence, for, for civil disorder, for all of these things, to, to not, not that they don't happen at all, but for them not to spiral into this, this, this mass of, you know, where people stop, to think, stop thinking as individuals and start thinking as a collective, that potential is much lower. And they're also highly self-reliant. And I'll leave it with that. But most rural areas, because of the native preparedness, are highly self-reliant. Remember, self-sufficiency means I don't need you at all. Self-reliant means I can get by until the systems come back. And there's a very high self-reliance quotient uh, in the rural environment. The bad. Generally at the bottom of priority of response. If power goes out for me uh, and the other 50 households that live, you know, on the, you know, about, it's probably about a thousand acres of property with 50 houses, um, guess what? We're last. I can't even complain. How could I complain? If there's 7,000 people down in Hot Springs uh, and 50 houses with maybe an average of three people, 150 people without power, if I were in charge, I would take care of the 7,000 first, wouldn't you? How else would you fairly make that decision? So you have uh, generally at the bottom of bottom of the priority of response for any situation. It doesn't mean help won't come. It just means when you're competing for available resources, you're going to come last. Poor career opportunities. Uh, I mean, if you move here, if you're not an entrepreneur or you're not moving here for a job that's already waiting for you, uh, this is a tough place to kind of build your career. Young kids are leaving this area here uh, quickly, uh, especially the, one, the smartest, the brightest, the ones that go to school or the ones that have motivation and drive. They're going to Little Rock. They're going down to Texarkana. They're going to Dallas. They're going you know anywhere but here. And there's a reason. It's because they don't have the opportunity. And generally speaking, the career opportunities in rural areas are for people that already know what they're doing. To get the start, to build the skill set, it's tough. It's very, very hard. I know people I went to school with, good men, good women. I uh, went to high school with in Pottsville. And it's you know kind of bordering between small town and true rural. And some of them, they just have loser, loser careers. They're never going to be anything, and I don't mean as a man or a woman, I mean as a, as a career. They're never going to have any money. They're just not going to have money. And I don't mean like, you know, be able to buy groceries. I mean they're never going to have money. When they retire, it's going to be Social Security and whatever's left of it, and maybe a little bit 401, 401k. They're not going to build wealth in their lives. Um, if they had gone somewhere else, gotten a start, developed a skill, developed a mentality, 
uh, and then come back and created something in these environments, they could do very well. And that gives opportunity for the people that are there. But for a lot of people, it's tough. If you don't know somebody, can't get in with somebody, it can be really, really hard from a career standpoint, and that is an issue. Um, the next is... It may take time to be accepted in the community. I kind of already talked about this, and we're long today, so I won't say much more. But, uh, again, places like Appalachia, uh, it, it can take a long time to be accepted. Uh, and I don't get it completely because where I'm from in Pennsylvania, it wasn't that way. And it's a coal region. And it's very, very similar to parts of West Virginia and their coal region where, you know, there's that tradition. But when someone new came to town, um, as long as they didn't do something stupid, uh, or cause problems, they were pretty quickly accepted into the community, and I've never heard the stories from my local area there. Now, to be fair, I was part of a family that was there for a long time. Maybe I just didn't see it. But but I really don't believe that it's there the way that it is in some of these parts of West Virginia, Tennessee. Um, this distrust of anybody from the outside. But in some areas, it's going to be there. Um, you're also more likely to lose services in the first place. There's less redundancy of electricity and gas and uh, police services and things like that. Generally speaking, your big cities have more police officers than they really need. Um, not really need to keep the crime rate down, but really need to do the daily business. There's a lot of, you know, if somebody doesn't show up for work, somebody can cover uh, there's a lot of resources within departments and interdepartmental resources. Uh, when it comes to electricity, odds are the electricity that comes to your house in a, in a city gets there by one particular path, but it could get there by three or four or five more different paths with rerouting. And the same with many other services, uh, whether they're person-based services or utility-based services, there's a tremendous amount of redundancy built in. When you live in a rural environment, you might be living on, a, instead of a net, you're on a fishing line. Right? You can cut ten lines out of a net and still catch fish. You cut one fishing line and you're not catching fish on that line anymore. So where we live for electricity, for instance, if there's something broken on uh, the majority of the route that brings electricity to our home, until that one point is fixed, it's not coming back. So you're more likely to be somebody that's going to lose the service in the first place, not even thinking about the response time. Um, there's a cost of community. For a lot of people that live in the rural environments, they still have to work in the small town, the suburb, or the urban, and they have to commute back and forth. And just to go to the store takes more energy uh, as far as fuel, so there's a cost of commuting. Uh, Man-made resource poor, comparatively speaking. Uh, if I'm walking through any city in America today and I have a cutting tool, um, and I have a combustion tool. I can make fire and I can cut. I can improvise anything. You put me out in the wilderness, I can still do it, but it's a lot harder. When I get closer to the wilderness, it's harder than it used to be. So there, there, there's so in a disaster where I have to improvise. There's less resources for me there. Doesn't mean that it's all bad, but it's just a fact. There's also less social group diversity. The further I get out, the less likely there is. And I'm gonna find me a permaculture group. I might be able to find hunting, fishing, people that work on cars, churches, and, and women that cook together in some areas. That might be it. And if you do anything else, you might. And if you like that stuff. Hey, great. But the further you move out, the harder it is to find the rich cultural diversity that we have in our cities. Diversity's gotten to be a bad word because liberals have done stupid stuff with it. They really have, you know, by forcing it onto people. People love diversity if you let them pick and choose the parts of it they want. Well, you move out into more rural areas and you get less to pick from. Let's move on to remote and wrap things up today. The, the remote to me is re like Davy Crockett. 
uh, wrote in a journal that when I can see the smoke from my neighbor's chimney, I'm too close to other people. That's remote. When you are at least that far away, when you, you, you know, you're out there, uh, you really could be in a place where you could stand up and scream for hours and hours and hours and no one would show up because no one would even hear you. That, that's what I mean by remote. Uh, remote like some of the backwoods of Maine. You know, there's all kinds of roads out there, but you could walk on a road for, for a week and never see another human being. That's what I mean by remote. This is not rural. This is not small town. This is the wilds of Alaska. This is the bitter roots of Montana. This is a place where you could legitimately travel for 10 miles by foot and not see a person and not be even surprised by it. In fact, if you did see someone, you would see it as surprise. That type of remoteness. What's the good? Extensive freedom. Absolutely the most freedom you'll ever have. Many things that you would do that are even technically against the law wouldn't matter because there's no one there to see it or care about it. Um, low population densities speaks for itself, right? You can't have a mob if there's no people. So if you live out in a remote corner of, of the high plains in Colorado or the bitter roots of Montana or someplace like that, as long as you can provide what you need, the odds that anybody's going to come take it away from you or destroy it are very low. The people that live that way from a survivalist mentality are absolutely right about that. Large amounts of cheap and usable land. This is dependent. Uh, states like Colorado, states like Montana, states like Wyoming, it's getting harder and harder to find affordable land in these remote spaces because so much of it has been taken up as public land and is not available. So between the ranch lands and the public lands, usable land is getting harder and harder to find. But if you're willing to go remote, I will find you a piece of land cheap. Uh, flat out. I mean, we can look at Maine, we can look at West Virginia, uh, we can look at Arkansas. There's places in Arkansas you might not ever see anybody ever. Uh, Louisiana, if you can deal with the swamps. I mean, if you'll do remote, you can find large amounts of cheap and usable land. You just might have to be creative with how you form it into something usable for yourself. The people that are there, extremely high self-reliance quotients, right? They are very, very self-reliant people. So, um, if, If you need help and there are other people in the area, and even the most remote areas, communities form, and those communities are tight, right? You might not see each other but once a month, but people look after each other. And when something happens and there's smoke coming from an area, uh, it's big, it's, you know, it's too far to see his chimney, so it might be a problem. Let's go, let's go find out what's going on out there with Tom. So, uh, they're very, very self-reliant people because they have to be. If you're that kind of remote, you don't have a choice. Because if you don't have something for tomorrow, running to Walmart today is not an option. Uh, you might go into town or into this, you know, what you would call a city if you live like that, once a month, once every three months, once every six months. Uh, there are people that, you know, they make that, that semi-annual supply run uh, for anything they can't provide from where they have. Uh, so that's going to mean that if, as long as you can live that way, you're surrounded by people that can live that way, and that means there's a hell of a lot less need to take away what somebody else has. Because people already know how to get by. Uh, again, and the community that does exist is really, really strong. You're generally surrounded by, if not directly, ground zero in the middle of those wild areas we've talked about so much already. And natural resources, you know, from food to plant life to uh, things that you can build with, anything that's natural-based, tree, plant, animal, insect, are generally highly available. What's the bad side of this remote type of life? Even too remote kind of for me to be happy on a daily basis. The, you know, people say I'd rather, you know, like love to visit New York City but don't want to stay there. That's how I feel about these really remote environments. I love, I can spend a month there. 
But I like having some level of, of, of real community and real interaction and occasionally going and, and, and taking in some entertainment or some culture. Uh, so I like the rural area with access to the suburban er- urban areas. Um, so what's the bad side? There is no such thing as a career opportunity. Unless you're going to be a hunting guide, a fishing guide, or a completely self-sufficient entrepreneur that doesn't depend at all on your on your surrounding people, you, you have no career opportunity. You might barter wood with the guy that doesn't like chopping wood. Uh, you might even be able to sell to him for money and use that to bring in some resources from outside. But there ain't no place you're going to go fill out a couple job applications this week and hopefully have a job by next week. It ain't going to happen. They're just not there. Uh, it, about the only way you're going to have a career out there is if like you're a lumberjack and you're sent there. You know, ice road truckers or uh, I guess you're pretty remote when you're on a crab fishing boat, those reality TV shows. But there's, there's not, you know, you're not going to drive down the road and put in seven job applications today. There's just nothing there like that. There's absolutely, you're going to be the absolutely last person to receive aid. Uh, when something goes wrong and there's a disaster, uh, you're on the priority list at the very, very bottom after we get everybody else will get to you. Uh, unless you're the only one in trouble. And then sometimes aid's still never coming. Because nobody may even know that you need help, right? Even their neighbor that stops by once every three weeks, you could be dead by the next time they stop by. It's not that they didn't care. They just didn't know. So it, it's, it's, it's absolutely the last place to receive aid. I would say it could be flat out lonely living like that. Even if you're a couple or a small group of people, I mean, you get tired of each other. Take a road trip with somebody for long enough and you start to wear on each other's nerves, even if you love each other. Right, so imagine that's it. That's all there is. Now, some people like to be hermits. Some people in a couple love to be together, right? But think about this, guys. Let's say you had that woman that loves it that way. What happens when you die if you die first? You know, it's just something you have to have a plan for. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying you have to think about what this type of remote living is really like, and it can be flat out lonely. Uh, the distance to supplies, that annual supply run, semi-annual supply run, quarterly supply run, can be extreme. Uh, and you got to have redundancy. I mean, you got to have two vehicles to live like this. Because if one doesn't work, man, you got to have the other one available. It's almost the case in some areas, you almost have to have two vehicles, one to provide the capacity to haul stuff back. But when you do go, if you're a couple, you guys almost have, you can't ride together. You got to follow each other in case somebody breaks down. Because if you're in the middle of nowhere and you break down, who's coming? You might not even have cell signal. This is the type of remoteness I'm talking about here. Um, if somebody does want to victimize you, it's a lot easier to get away with. If I'm scumbag and I want to go out and just kill some people, well, this is a perfect place to do it. doesn't happen a lot because those people generally shoot back. But if I want to steal, if I want to rob, if I want to rape, if I want to pillage, it's actually easier to do in the remote environments. I might be more likely to end up dead and buried, buried in a backyard and uh, no one even know where I went to is the bad guy. But the same is true the other way around. So... Because there's not a lot of law enforcement activities. There's not a lot of help coming. So it's an easier way to be victimized. It's very difficult to raise children like this. I believe that children need community more more at that time in their life than any other time. I'm not putting down homeschooling at all because homeschoolers get together with other homeschoolers. Kids go out and play in play, playgrounds. They have social activities. They put them in. You know, I know some kids that are homeschooled up here. They take Taekwondo. They have that as a. But but when if you got two three you know two three kids brother sister and brother running around together and it's kind of remote and no other kids around. This can be really really tough on them. Again, this isn't rural. Where maybe Tommy and Susie live, you know, two farms over and they don't see each other a lot, but they're there and they at least know that they're there and they can come together sometimes. This is, you might not see anybody for a month at a time. 
that's very difficult to raise children in, in my personal view. And then there's high construction costs. Whatever you're going to build is going to cost a lot of money. And that's true in rural environments too, but I didn't put it there because generally it can be overcome in most situations unless it's just a, uh, an extreme based on like a, an acute situation, like a really bad road or a high mountaintop or something like that. But generally speaking, rural areas, construction costs are actually affordable because there's an abundance of labor that knows how to do construction and a, a, uh, a minor amount of, of construction going on. So you can utilize that local talent at affordable rates because they need whatever work they can get. Where when you go to remote, uh, if you want a cabin built in a remote location or a house built in a remote location or something like that, the work crew might have to live the same way you are for a couple months to build it. And then there's the cost of getting the materials in there. They might have to bring in. I mean, I've seen places where to do certain things, some of the materials had to be brought in sling-loaded by helicopters. You know, if that's where you want to live, I understand it. There's a certain appeal to it. But there's going to be a cost associated with it. So construction costs and general transportation costs of anything you need to get in are going to be very high. So there you go. People ask me, where do I live? Well, it's up to you where you live. But here's that's the way I analyze it. And that's why I kind of fell into this rural environment. One thing I'll answer here at the end. I get this question all the time. I've answered it before a variety of times. But I get a lot of times people say when they hear I live in a mobile home, what made me choose a mobile home? I didn't choose a mobile home. I chose to live in a rural environment, and I wanted some land, and I wanted to be able to hunt in my backyard. I wanted to have deer in my backyard. I wanted to be able to garden. I wanted a community of decent people around me. I wanted to be as remote as I could and still have the access to the small town and all that. And as I looked for that, um, the most affordable property that worked the best happened to have a mobile home on it, and it wasn't a deal breaker for me. And I think other than their vulnerability to storms, and specifically tornadoes, I don't see a mobile home as a disadvantage in, in, in any real way. They're not quite as energy efficient, and would I be better off with a more energy efficient site-built home? Yes, but was it enough to make me break the deal on it? No, just not at all. I think there's a stigma there, uh, but if you, uh, if you came to my house and you saw what we've done to it with our remodeling work, which was very affordable to do and being phased out and paid cash for, uh, you'd see that when you're standing inside the place, it doesn't feel like a mobile home. You know, there's a difference. Um, but I would, you know, I could honestly get a great big fifth wheel and pull it up on a place as long as I got power and water and internet access, pff, I'm good. Um, so for me, it, that, it was more about what I could get for the money and the type of environment I wanted. Had I gone up there, and I only paid seventy four thousand for my place with five acres, and it's a it's a it's a great place to live. It really is. But had I gone up there in a similar sized home, it was more of a site built uh, home, more energy efficient, had been selling for ninety five thousand, and I had those two to pick from, and everything else was pretty much the same. I would have I would have paid the twenty thousand more. I didn't find that. So that's why I chose where I'm at, because of all the attributes that we've talked about today, some specific attributes to the individual situation, defensibility, uh, the, the strength of the community around it, the resources around it, um, but it was just that's what was there, and, that, and what was there was good enough. So there you go. Uh, with that, I hope you know maybe this gives you a new way to look at it, because I know we've got a lot of people here that you're planning for your future. And you're saying, I want that homestead. But you're saying, where do I want that homestead? What do I want out of that homestead? And rather than just the whole show again today about you know the qualities that make a good homestead, let's talk about all the different places you have to choose from. If you want a homestead in the city, that's okay. 
Just understand with eyes wide open the things you need to be prepared to do if things go wrong. Understand all the good, understand all the bad, and understand what you're giving up by not backing up a few blocks and getting into the suburbs. And if you want to live there, understand the same things and what you're giving up by not backing out into that small town or to that rural environment. And if you're going to go remote, understand all of the beauty of the frontier that's still left, but understand the loneliness and the independence that you have to live in and the fact that sooner or later we're all going to get older. And when you get older, it's not as easy. So for some of you, that might mean that you build a life for yourself in some kind of a base camp and you go out and maybe live for a few years that way now. Nothing wrong with it. That could be a few years or a few weeks. I took a couple months uh, when I got out of the Army and I spent uh, a good part of it on the Appalachian Trail. And I hiked from basically central Pennsylvania up to uh, Vermont. And uh, that was, uh, and I spent my whole time on the trail, uh, either staying and camping on the trail or staying uh, in some, some places that are available along the way where you can rent a room for a night and get a proper shower and things like that uh, by walking a few miles from the trail. And there's, there's all kinds of cool ways to do that. Uh, that wasn't anything like going out and living in the Bitterroots for three or four years, uh, but it was a good part of my life. So there's, there's balance in between these things. So as you're deciding how you want to live your life and where you want to live your life, Make these considerations uh, and, and, and figure out what works best for you. And if what works best for you isn't what works best for me, don't worry about it. And if, I, if it's not what I would choose, don't worry about it. If somebody that wrote a book somewhere says that it's a bad place to be, they don't know. They've probably never been there. You know, if somebody that's a blogger tells you that the zombies are going to get you because you live there, they don't know either. It, it's all about being prepared and having redundancies built into your life. And most importantly, living in a way day-to-day that makes you happy. There's no good to come from moving out into a rural or remote area and knowing you're safe if the, if the end of the world as we know it comes, but being miserable every day. That's not survival. Uh, that, that's existence. Survival is living in a way where you can thrive as a human being. So find what works for you, make the best of it, and be prepared to deal with the negatives, and to really make the positives impact your life. You're going to move somewhere because you can hunt and fish there. Make sure you take some time out of your day to hunt and fish. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares. They're
future.